an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I'm really moved when I hear a, a sort of a family story like I just heard. Um, I, I'm an adult convert, and so I didn't go to Catholic schools, but I went to a very good Protestant liberal arts school, and we had uh, people around who sound a bit like your father. Uh, and I loved the dynamic that was possible in that kind of a setting between the students and uh, the faculty, the faculty if they wanted to, I should say. And I'm very glad to see that alive here. I don't know, I've been here several times over the years, and on the one hand I see the school changing all the time, uh, but I see the, the kind of things that I really value uh, deepening, I think. I enjoyed the semester in Gaming. Um, the, uh, I know the students enjoyed the semester in Gaming. I don't know if it had much to do with the classroom or not, but uh, uh, they're all now experts in beer drinking. <laughs> Let me begin by telling you a bit about Christopher Dawson. For I cannot presume that all of you know much about him. He was born in 1898 to an Anglo-Catholic military family with a splendid library. This is the kind of a creature that's almost out of existence now, I think. But uh, he, he was born to a family wealthy enough so actually nobody had to work. They did uh, serve in the military uh, out of a sense of duty but they also had a magnificent private library in which uh, Christopher Dawson could uh, read uh, most of the works that he needed actually for his writings uh, right in that library. He converted to Roman Catholicism in 1914. Though from time to time he held a, un a number of university teaching positions, his life was for the most part that, as I've said, of an independent scholar spent with his books, writing, and editing, the latter including being the editor of the Dublin Review, a rather prominent journal at the time, and he did, through his life, uh, do a fair amount of journal editing. He had a period of popularity with a high readership from the 1930s until 1970 when he died. This past spring, when I participated in a session at the International Medieval Congress in Kalamazoo, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the publication of his Making of Europe, title of one of his books, I was somewhat surprised to find out how many historians of my generation had read him as undergraduates. My experience of reading the Making of Europe at a Protestant liberal arts college was one shared by many. I say I was surprised because when I mentioned Dawson to the present chairwoman of my history department in a state university, uh, and she went to St. Andrews herself for her education and is English, uh, she did not, know who, did not know who I was talking about. Uh, he did not know who he was. Indeed, one of the most recent popular books written in medieval history in the last generation by Robert Bartlett, who actually for a period also taught at St. Andrews, has the same title as Dawson's aforementioned Making of Europe, but shows no awareness of knowing this. In other words, he used the title of one of Dawson's books, but he apparently didn't take the time to even look in the card catalog to find out if somebody had used this title already. And he never refers to Dawson. So, Dawson seems to have had a few decades of fame as an historian, though most of his books remain in print. I especially, especially recommend the edition of his books published by the Catholic University of America Press, of which I provide the introduction to one of the most interesting, his The Crisis of Western Education. I hope sometime as an undergraduate, everybody can read that book. It's a, it's a really illuminating book about how we got where we are uh, more or less today, Crisis of Western Education. It, it, I say, gives a fine overview of the history of Western education. There was a certain culmination to Dawson's career when Harvard awarded him its first chair of Roman Catholic studies. 
so that already in his 60s, he came to the United States for the first time, spending four years. I, this was, I say this was a certain culmination in his career because arguably the greatest acknowledgement of his ability was his being invited to give the Gifford Lectures from 1947 to 1949, which became two of his books, and I'm sure many of you, at least if you have any interest in history, are, are familiar with the, the Gifford Lectures. Some might think that there is an obvious reason for Dawson's lack of staying power. He was a Catholic. And though in his day one could find Catholics in England's major universities, they were often on the fringes. I think the situation is a bit more complicated uh, than that in Dawson's case, or at least I would want to unpack the importance of Dawson's Catholicism in a specific way, showing how much he stood against almost all traditions of historical writing in the England of his day. First, some background. After the First World War, People of very different views worried about the possibility of further war on the scale of what they had experienced. For instance, the later Sigmund Freud developed his theory of the ego as a means for regulating the forces of unfettered aggression which seemed to lie within every human. Though England shared in the sense that the Great War had discredited the various European powers, especially the governing classes across Europe, a number of writers, among whom Dawson should be numbered, also thought the war in part a result of the abandonment of Christian principles in favor of unbridled nationalism. While as a convert to Catholicism, a part of an often despised minority in what could be already then called in some degree a post-Christian country, he, along with such men as G.K. Chesterton and Graham Greene, also was part of a striking Catholic intellectual renewal, sometimes called the Third Spring. Again, I read a number of these writers while in college. I liked Dawson because his books were so well-written and Dawson obviously so clear-minded. I read him at roughly the same time I first read Arnold Toynbee, and there was no doubt in my mind who was the greater genius, who had the more valuable things to say. I admire Dawson's being interested in everything and having published on many subjects. Having myself gone to Rome, in every sense of that word, during graduate school, I have subsequently occasionally been asked to lecture or write on Dawson. I know that historical writing usually has a short half-life and do not usually return to Dawson for the detail of his narration, which generally has uh, you know, can be brought up to date and, and has been done better. But for the ideas by which he orders his materials, these seem to me as fresh as when he wrote. When I was in college, the early Middle Ages, particular, the particular subject of a number of Dawson's books, was commonly called the Dark Ages, as in some quarters today it still is. Dawson, too, sometimes used this expression. History in those days generally had a heavily moralizing cast about it it had inherited from the ancients. Medievalists like Charles Homer Haskins at Harvard or Joseph Strayer at Princeton apparently thought they had to sell the importance of their field by tracing things virtually everyone thought valuable, such as Parliament or the university, to it. The Middle Ages was in some ways dark, but it also, they said, saw the invention of much that is valued today. This kind of argument was customarily part of a larger progressive view of history, which saw the race, at least in parts of the European West, as advancing over the generations, at least since the Renaissance, or since the appearance of Protestantism, or since the birth of modern science. These are generally the great three great carriers of progress in the narratives that we find in the West. And they exempted from condemnation those things in the Middle Ages which anticipated modernity, which is really their standard for judging things. Again, in spite of attacks on this idea of progress by men such as Dawson's great contemporary, Herbert Butterfield, such belief in progress is still very much alive today. 
you don't have to read very much, very far in an American newspaper to find a schema of progress uh, presented. The argument that we have to be up with the times or uh, somehow accommodate to the most recent developments. Dawson disliked the influence nationalism had had in the writing of history, especially among the English, and developed his views as a kind of antidote against such small-minded notions. There is an obvious sense in which because Catholics belong to a world religion, and I think that's going to become clearer and clearer with the present Pope, um, they often use a larger framework for forming their historical ideas than any religion which is primarily the expression of one nation's historical experience, and I would include that one nation to the United States also. For Dawson, the world had been a better place before the coming of nationalism, and he thus was especially enamored of the early Middle Ages when nations were puny and what unity there was largely provided by Christianity. Here he had especially two goals, to explain to his con uh, contemporaries what Christendom had been, and to show what it meant to hold that religion, not politics or any other human activity, is at the core of culture. These are, that's a central idea for Dawson. Religion is at the core of culture, not politics. Both ideas need explaining. Let me begin with the latter. In uh, my book on the idea of transcendence in Western culture, I reprised Dawson's idea that humans, even more than being political animals, are religious animals. Now, you're presumably all familiar with the notion that humans are political animals, uh, derived from Aristotle's politics. Um, but Dawson argued that men are religious animals. He, he did not at all disagree with the notion that we are political animals. We are all kinds of animal at the same time, right? And for him, it was a more profound observation to note that uh, historically even, uh, but also he argued men were made for this, uh, humans are, say, made to be oriented to, towards God. And he saw culture as an ex culture around the world as an expression of many of the ways that one can be oriented towards God. And so forth. there's no single way, many ways. I argued in that book on transcendence that a common way of presenting the history of secularization, that humans have passed over the century from a generally religious form of life to a secular form of life, is not true to the historical record. And again, I think many Americans sort of assume that secularization is, is, is a central theme of, of contemporary history. Uh, I can't go into my own position here at any length, but my argument would be that we are always secularizing and desecularizing. I understand secularization to mean, secularization to mean just accommodation to the age. And to the extent that we become like the world around us, we are becoming secularized. Uh, and I understand desecularization to be some form of rebellion against secularization, uh, being conformed to this world. And, so, and it seems to me that in, in history, all, both of these processes uh, take uh, place simultaneously. And the, it's not very interesting to do a linear history of just things forever secularizing. The interesting thing is to see how man tries in one way or another to recover his religious nature by, re, uh, by returning to God. Dawson thought that this, that is the whole question of man's religious nature, had been poorly studied in Western historiography. We might say that though Herodotus made a good beginning, in trying to tell a human story centered on religion and the creation of culture. And Dawson, I use the word culture, by the way, not in the normal sense. Usually when you use the word culture, I think as an American, you mean high culture. Um, to be cultured is to know a good deal about music or something like that. <coughs> Dawson thought that all humans had a culture around them, that they were formed by it, and that culture was simply a material expression of ideas that they had. 
So uh, if, if you live in a secular, uh, what's so-called secularizing culture, what that really means is that for the most part at this point in time, you are becoming like the world around you. If you live at a time of religious revival, it means you suddenly seeing what you've made of things by doing the last thing and you react against it. And I see, I think in some degree, both of those things go on all the time and both people, uh, both things uh, are experienced by most people. Well, anyway, I say Herodotus made a good beginning, but somebody like Thucydides, who when I was an undergraduate, I thought was the greatest thing that I'd ever read, uh, the, uh, somebody like Thucydides, uh, actually narrowed the focus of what human beings could be interested in by becoming interested primarily in politics. He does a splendid job of that. But he narrowed the human framework about what the overall narrative is about to being a history of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, in other words, by taking, he, by taking a very a relatively narrow framework dictated by his time, uh, he lost interest in all the kinds of things that um, Herodotus was interested in and uh, uh, tantalized us, us with. Though not opposed to such political narrative, Dawson thought it obscured what should be at the center of any story about human experience. Most historians of his day still thought history was above all about great men, kings or churchmen, or about the needs of nations. They had died, tied this idea to what we might call a primitivist mode of thought in which the heights of human capacity were seen as pursued by the ancients, lost by the medievals, and regained by the Renaissance or the Reformation or the birth of modern science. Thus the division, still common today, I think even here, uh, of history into ancient, medieval, and modern. Okay? Uh, that's a framework uh, inherited from a certain secularization of history that took place uh, in the past. So, Dawson specifically says of his making of Europe that is not about dark ages, though as already noted, I say you can use the expression, but about the dawn of Europe, the witnessing of the conversion of the West, the foundation of Christian civilization. He did not see all humans at a given time as at the same stage of development, but rather wished to place his human characters into the cultural development which helped define them. Now let me elaborate a little bit. Uh, Dawson's argument was that what history is about is the formation of cu cultures around the world. And the sort of obvious way to organize history would be to go through the origins and maturity and decline of a given view of the world. And so, saying, just using Western Civ as an example, you would begin with Greek history, and you would talk about the development of the things that most Greeks uh, would affirm in the fifth century in the classical period, and then you would talk about the transmutation of those things, well, first of all, the passing on to Rome of those, uh, that view of the world, part of that view of the world, and then to Byzantium as Christian Rome of another part of that view of the world, and so forth down to today, where Kim Georgetes lives and still believes in, some, in things Greek, okay, some things Greek at least. Uh, the point would be that then you could take the Jews and show that coming from not that different a place in the world, how different their cultural development was. You would articulate what they, what they affirmed at the beginning and then you would work that out uh, and then you would show it passing on to Christianity on the one hand, I mean, staying in Judaism also, and so forth down to the present where there are still Jews and Jewish culture, okay? It doesn't do very well in America perhaps, but um, nevertheless uh, it's a permanent entity. And so you would begin with Rome and show how Rome formed, how it received these other gifts from the past, from these other civilizations that had already existed, and how it, in turn, gave the world law and order, if I can be pretty simple about it. In other words, taught humans how to think, if I can put it that way, best about the law and best about uh, what you have to do 
if you want to have a stable and, in their eyes, eternal Rome. Remember, we have how many Romes in history? We have Rome, and then we have Christian Rome, and then we have um, the uh, Moscow. We have, that's the third Rome, of course, and so forth down to the present. Uh, so Dawson's idea was that what the historian keeps his eye on is the formation of these cultures, and if you look at them, they don't, they're not in any kind of a t shared timeline. The Greek developments are very different from the Jewish developments, et cetera. And so uh, the, uh, the conclusion must be that it's kind of meaningless or pointless to talk about ancient, medieval, and modern. Where is the ancient? Well, you can talk, usually when you say ancient, you really mean Greece and Rome. But why do you leave out the Jews, etc.? Okay, ancient, medieval, and modern. Medieval makes even less sense. What is the medieval? Well, I guess it's what's in the middle. I mean, you can't actually give a positive characterization at all. It's just what happened after you lost the ancient, okay, and so forth. And the modern, of course, that's us. That's what it's all aiming at in this kind of simple-minded division of history. So Dawson was against all that kind of thought and wanted to replace it with the notion of cultural history of, of the form I've tried briefly to summarize. So he held that Western culture, that story of Western culture could not be reduced to some triadic pattern, let, let alone the story of world culture. From the time of Constantine, around 300 AD, Christianity increasingly came together with Roman culture to provide a new religious core. Obviously, that had been happening since the time of Jesus. Dawson now speaks of Christian culture, that is, the culture that's formed and forming from the time of Jesus and becomes a center stage, if you will, with Constantine and the conversion of Constantine to Christianity. The Christians appropriated much in Jewish Christian, uh, excuse me, Jewish Greek and Roman culture, but had much that was distinctive to themselves. How many could have guessed at the beginning that one of the distinctly Christian forms of life would be the monk warrior or knight templar? Now, if you think about it, I mean, Christianity is what Dawson calls a religion of peace. Its goal is a peaceful world. Its goal is a peaceful heaven, a harmonious heaven and so forth. Well, how, if you begin with that kind of an idea, do you end up with things in the Middle Ages like uh, the Knights Templar? That is, these are monks who fight and kill. Okay, now if you read, if you read Dawson, he'll, I think, have a perfectly plausible explanation of how that happened. But the point is, you could not have looked at the beginning of Christianity and saw the Knights Templar coming down the road. Uh, that was a working out of some of these themes that are always historically contingent in terms of the expression they take uh, over a period of, of, of a thousand years. According to Dawson, it, it was the memory of the past unity provided by the Romans that sustained medieval Europe's search for unity. I say from the time of Constantine, Christianity increasingly became, came together with Roman culture to provide a new religious course, core. Dawson now speaks of Christian culture, the story of which had shared elements and unique elements. In the case of none of these cultural histories was the most obvious framework for narrative ancient, medieval, modern. Indeed, each of them was at any given time at a different stage of maturation from the others. Especially of interest, if one was writing the history of Christians, was an attempt to let the cultural development dictate the narrative framework, and that's what Dawson tries to do. In no case would one end with a label such as medieval to describe the period of maturation. Indeed, one could argue about when the fullest form of development had been, when the Christian core or form had most been expressed in the material environment. And material environment is really in, uh, important to Dawson. 
When he does the history of Europe, for instance, those of you who have been to Gaming have some sense of this, you've made the trip down to Rome. You start out in Gaming and you've got fairly typical Austrian or German houses, for instance. Then you go through this odd area, uh, Alto Adige, say, uh, where the houses are not uh, so German looking as they were, but they're not Italian looking either, and then you finally get to the full-blown Italian house. Well, Dawson's argument was that in any culture, you took the ideas you don't didn't even necessarily reflect in, let's say, let's, let's make an Austrian uh, architecture or something like that. You didn't even have to reflect on life that much to do it. But what you did was, in fact, take things that were important in your culture and build a material environment around them. And when he says culture, he means, above all, material environment. He doesn't want to exclude music and philosophy and so forth, but he wants to emphasize how important the expression for the, for the historian is the expression of these things in a material environment. Uh, actually, as a medievalist, but somebody who studied some other stuff, uh, I don't think that the height of Christian culture is in the Middle Ages at all. Uh, and I, I'm sort of taken back by the, uh, you know, the, the notion of uh, the equation of Christianity with most Christian. Um, I would argue it's the 17th century. I mean, look at the Baroque at its flourishing, how, how much that affected the material environment and so forth. Look what the church looks like after the Tridentin reforms and so forth. And it's a little hard to convince me that the best time was before any of those things, uh, the most Christian time was before any of those things had, um, had expressed themselves. But that's not Dawson, that's me. So, in any case, at the center of a book such as Dawson's Making of Europe is a narrative about how from the 6th to 11th centuries the unity of Europe was forged. Notice this unity is not then a political unity. At no time from the 6th to the 11th century is the Roman church, down, the church down in Rome under a pope, a very powerful entity. This is a period of great weakness for the church uh, and so forth. What Dawson means by that is that it's during this period that most Europeans call, came to call themselves Christians and thought of belonging to a Christian thing which was not a national thing and it was not an imperial thing. It was just a public expression. To the extent, I suppose, that it had a center, it was in the papacy. But the Pope I, I, I have to assure you as a medievalist, because you're told the opposite almost every day, um, the Pope could very little get his, anything done in those centuries, that five, half a millennium, okay? Uh, the, the, the church did not pre, uh, present any very effective center to Christendom. But nevertheless, virtually everybody living in what we call Europe, and more than what we call Europe, uh, thought of themselves as Christians and as somehow identifiable or linkable at least to Christians elsewhere. So, such a narrative building around a political unity would hardly be credible if it had to be about political how political unity was forged. For, the, for though there might be various Christian empires during this period, none of them was imposing from a political point of view. The unity Dawson was talking about was the cultural unity he called Christendom. Even here one might object that culture at all levels varied significantly across Europe, which it did. There was, uh, that there was no common culture. Again, it is really important to understand that Dawson understood Christendom to mean the shared Christianity of the West. This was embodied in no one government. The papacy symbolized unity more than any other office in society, and someone like Charlemagne could understand himself to be the ruler of we Christians. But Christendom had no capital. One might say no governing center nor precise national boundaries. It was more a fairly widely shared sense of being Christians, of belonging, as I've said, to the Christian thing. I, get, I quote from Dawson. 
European civilization is not an abstract intellectual concept like the civilization of the 18th century philosophers. It is a concrete social organism which is just as real and far more important than the national unities of which we talk so much and uh, every, for my health I have to go and ride a bike every, for a half hour every day and, and that kind of forces me to watch whatever of the national TV stations <laughs> is on. And I just can't believe how dumb the news is, how dumb the news makes you, uh, uh, and so forth. And uh, that was sort of, uh, uh, Dawson had an early sense of that. This was what few, even among those receptive to the idea that nationalism was tearing Europe apart, had much sense of. And Dawson's task was to, to attempt was an attempt to supply knowledge of how European unity had come about and what its nature was. Certainly, our situation is no better than Dawson's. I'm pretty sure it's worse. Oh, well, judging by what my, this, I mean, if you want to see the decline of the civilization, you know, you be a college professor and <laughs> measure the vocabulary decline uh, year after year and so forth. Um, I don't want to get into that, that's another, another topic. But when people talk about progress, I, I say, you mean people have a better sense now of how wily we are as human beings? I mean, most of my students are just naive as can be about how bad humans are. You know, they, they can't hold a progressive view of the world unless they were good. Okay, you figure. Clearly, this dispute has also involved what we might call an attempt to rewrite European history so that it centers on its Enlightenment heritage uh, rather than on the forming of Europe in a Christian womb. Historians such as Robert Darnton uh, at Princeton when he wrote the most famous book of the kind I'm describing now, pretty much obliterate everything before the 18th century in defining Europe. In other words, for them, Europe has nothing to do with once having been Christian or something. That's just something you forget about and so forth. Europe was what we finally got in the Enlightenment. That was the, sort of what everything had been aiming at. And there's lots, I would think the majority, in a state university, certainly the majority of historians think that way. Um, I've had chairmen who would just as soon have, I teach church history, and we just as soon have no church history because that's just teaching things that are completely wrong. Okay, Dawson begins the second chapter of the making of Europe on the Catholic Church, that's the subject of the title, with a credo that separates him from many of his contemporaries. I quote again, history is not to be explained as a closed order in which each stage is the inevitable and logical result of what has gone before. There is in it always a mysterious and inexplicable element due not only to the influence of chance or the initiative of the individual genius, but also to the creative power of spiritual forces and to, in the very limited degree that humans can chart that kind of thing, he, he thought that that was the, sort of the first thing they should do. When we remember that this was a time in the British universities of much Marxism, of many claims that history was a kind of science in which the implicit assertion was that the historian could play God and show the clear and distinct causal relations between events, this credo of Dawson's on behalf of mystery and the importance of studying spiritual forces was quite unusual. Perhaps the fact that Dawson was an independent scholar contributed to the independence of his thought on such matters. In any case, he took seriously the life of the spirit in ways that few of his contemporaries did. Am I doing that? <laughs> Dawson's argument was that Europe owes its political existence to the Roman Empire and its spiritual unity to the Catholic Church, while being indebted to the classical tradition for its intellectual culture. These three elements or formative influences are spelled out at the beginning of chapter four of the making of Europe as fundamental to European unity as the foundations. 
Coming close to using the Aristotelian language of form and matter, Dawson says that these three formative influences, I quote, shape the material of our civilization, but the material itself is to be found elsewhere in the obscure chaos of the barbarian world. For it is the barbarians who provided the human material out of which Europe has been fashioned. They are the gentes as against the imperium and the ecclesia, the source of the national element in European life. Now Dawson himself is very much against romanticism, what he would have called romanticism, and yet he saw that the romantics had had something very important to say, and that is that you can never reduce the history of the West to just legal and intellectual factors and things like that. And a very important thing was how people were thinking in areas that never got touched by Rome. If you don't know that, in other words, what he, he, he for a purpose of abbreviation, calls with the war cultures. In other words, he, he con uh, contrasted the uh, peace culture of the Mediterranean that becomes carried by, by Christianity with the war culture of the northern peoples. But it, he emphasizes that that war culture of the northern peoples is how tribal people live. He's always a sociologist. And he wants to say it's not so much that, you know, Germans are more warlike per se or something like that, but they do, they did historically belong to a culture that expressed, uh, defined manliness, for instance, in your ability to kill people. So don't be surprised if Christianity brings both of these things together as it's uniting Europe together and therefore don't be surprised that you get something like the, the Knights Templar. Uh, I wish I had the time to give a justification of the Knights Templar, because they may sound bad in uh, this kind of brief rendition, but that's the leading idea. Generations of scholars had minimized the role of the gentes or barbarians in European life because their attention was focused on the traditions of higher culture of whom they saw themselves as the guardians. Only in the 19th century, because of the rise of nationalism, was this barbarian human material appreciated in the reaction we call romanticism. Always the good and the evil existing together. That is precisely in the development of romanticism that you get taken seriously things that the, the Enlightenment just wouldn't look at or think about and so forth. And so the, the, the goal is not to reject the one, for instance, in favor of the other, but to see that how they were brought together, and that's what the, the historian of, of, of culture would do. Thus, in speaking of such things as national genius, in turn, minimalized its, uh, its turn, in its turn, minimalized the classical and Christian elements in the making of Europe. Although today, living on the far side of the Nazi period, we are reluctant to speak much of national genius. Any medievalist who has studied with a good Germanist, and actually not many have uh, in this country, knows the profit of examining traditional topics from a non-classicist perspective. In other words, th these things make sense in terms of the history of the northern tribes. They might not make sense in terms of what the Romans valued. I have suggested elsewhere that part of Dawson's genius was his ability to characterize in just a few words the forms that various cultures had taken. He used the word culture, not as many Americans do, as a way of referring to the highest achievements of the human race, as in music or art, high culture, but in a way linked to both the meanings of culture and civilization in some English writers of the 19th century and to the developing sociology of the 20th century as Dawson had read in it as the first John Ruskin had, by civilization, meant a pattern of duties and manners whose performance was scarcely conscious. All of you kind of assume that you get the lights on in the, in the room by going and flipping a switch. You don't really have to think very much about that. But that shows how you have imbibed and been formed by that particular notion of uh, uh, causation. Now, Though Dawson intended to reserve the word civil civilization for phenomena derived from the Latin kiwitas, that is to a specific urban form of culture, 
Ruskin's use of civilization was similar to what Dawson meant by culture, shared patterns of life, whether high or low, ranging from shared forms of thought to shared manners of living. This is one meaning of the German gestalt. And I have sometimes used this word, form, to express what was at the heart of Dawson's historical quest. He wanted to know the form of the shared habits of life and thought of the ver various peoples he studied, life and thought of the various peoples he studied. He always took the sociological point of view, driving home in his chapters on the barbarians a sociologist definition, emphasizing that barbarism is not savagery, but a stage of social development built around tribes. There has been a nominalist tendency since his death to be wary of the idea of shared worldviews or common cultures. Wariness is okay, but I see no way of avoiding the idea of common cultures. I was, as a young man, told by an English academic that I was the first American he had met who believed in authority. And my wife and I have on more than one occasion been told in Europe that we are, quote, not like other Americans. I have always taken such comments as compliments, or at least exploratory attempts at ingratiation. But do not take my exceptional status to mean I am not American. All such comments signify is the need for all ordering ideas to be qualified and recognized as generalizations to which there will be exceptions. Dawson presents a very appreciative overview of early medieval Irish culture. In doing this, he observes that parts of Europe which remain the most Christianized today, such as the Tyrol, are just those which also manifest the most pagan survivals. Dawson thought it was a, a, a really Protestant idea to think that if you had been thoroughly Christianized, you had gotten rid of everything that got, came before, i.e. pagan survivals. And his point is that, no, no, no. When Christianity comes, it doesn't generally get rid of these older things. It baptizes them. It gives them a new shape and so forth. And what is really important in doing the history of culture is to keep your eye on that reshaping. So anyway, as a Catholic, he does not seem surprised that in so-called areas of pagan survival, we often have the most Christian uh, culture historically. The final chapter of the making of Europe introduces Dawson's well-known characterization of the peace and war cultures, the struggle between which ran through the whole Middle Ages, but is found especially in the 10th and following centuries. And so in the conclusion to this book, he comes to the 11th century and the end of the Dark Ages and the emergence of Western culture, a phrase again from him. Dawson here glances much later in time, for instance, to note that in the Renaissance and later, Europe built its cultural unity around the classics. As he writes elsewhere, this is why this cultural unity could survive the split over religion in the Reformation. Both sides continue to make the classics the center of study. It's only in our day that they don't do that. The word I used above to designate form, the familiar German gestalt, <coughs> was a word not typically a part of Dawson's vocabulary. I use the word as a way of introducing the philosophical considerations not explicit in the Dawsonian approach to history as nevertheless useful in working out the philosophical issues underlying Dawson's views. I do this because of a personal loyalty to what at first view seems two very different ways of approaching the world the first of English common sense, and the second that of the continuing philosophical tradition going back before Aristotle, but continuing in the German concern in philosophy for gestalt or form. For most English-speaking people, it is the latter tradition that is <coughs> excuse me, problematic. For me, the so-called English common sense realism can be as problematic as anything in German thought and in any case carries with it the continuing obtuseness and lack of imagination that so clouds Anglo-American philosophic thinking to the present. Common sense is the characterization that depends so much on what history has made familiar. As Fancine Prose so wonderfully puts it in My New American Life, in which he has a recent immigrant from Albania to America 
and I was privileged to be in Albania a few years ago to see how this worked, uh, to America, let me stop that, in which you as a recent immigrant from Albania to America try to explain how different two cultures can be, and this is a quotation from that work. Paranoia was English for Balkan common sense. <laughs> well, the articulation of the forms of cultures in Dawson's work seems to me his chief accomplishment. I do not understand Dawson's Christian view of history to mean that Dawson thought that in Christianity one obtained a hermeneutical entrance into understanding what is God is doing in specific events. I think this is a fairly typical misinterpretation of him. One as a Christian can see in a general way what God intends from history. To have humans of their own free will choose for God and be conformed to his will in preparation for living with God eternally. The Greek and biblical name for this is theosis, divinization, or becoming forever more like God without becoming God. But this does not mean that here below, humans can read God's mind and know with certainty what he is doing in the passing events of time. One's belief that God is effectively present in history does not translate into being able to know with certainty what God is doing beyond such important things as that he wishes all to be saved. One may safely assume that God wishes the spread of the sacraments, but this still does not give a key to other than the most general judgments about the times. Many have in fact understood Augustine to have held that we can write history from God's view, which I think is a misunderstanding of Augustine, and to have associated that the Christian historian traces God's judgments in time. Indeed, for a long time, this was how Christian historians most commonly read Augustine, thinking that their main task was to show how God was acting in the events they portrayed. If a king came to a bad end, this was because he had done bad things, but such a view was immodest, or as I have said, here below we see, in a, as in a mirror, darkly. Of course, one could hold to general principles as that God does judge humans, or that he wills the salvation of all, and is at work in time to achieve this. Thus, in his theodicy, Cyril of Alexandria held that God expressed his love for mankind by giving warnings through the prophets, and if repentance was not forthcoming, sending harsh but judge punishments. But Cyril was commenting on biblical history, not on history in general, especially not on history after scriptural times. As the great Christian historian Herbert Butterfield argued in our own day, that the Bible tells us what God did in past times does not translate into our being able definitively to read what he is doing today. We dwell in mystery and cannot even judge or know ourselves adequately. Dawson did not follow the mainstream of historical thinking during the last couple hundred years. This mainstream has become liberal in the sense criticized today by Alasdair MacIntyre. Christians before the Enlightenment had understood human nature as both fixed and rooted in fallen human nature. From this they concluded against all forms of utopianism and did not think that history was aimed at some general form of human perfection within the bounds of time. They were like Michael Oakeshott's conservatives, taking delight in the world and willing to experiment with or examine specific problems, but not believing that nature and history could be significantly reshaped by reason or technology, or that humans could unendingly progress. The human condition was not open to substantial change. Chinese intellectuals such as Liu Jiabo are only among the latest to, stay, to say roughly the same thing, beginning with an almost childlike confidence in the ability of China to reform itself by the application of Western ideals. Liu then underwent an effective dis disillusionment, residents in the United States. From this, he learned that Western answers to the predicaments of modernity were far, um, from adequate, and that there was no good reason to believe that the whole race was destined to a Western end. We have seen that Dawson did not think that the Christian idea of providence could be turned into the idea of unlimited historical progress. 
the common expression to be on the side of history was far from his thought. Such a statement implies that one knows the direction history is going and that the right-thinking person should always be on the side of the future, which is to say, side with change against tradition. He was far from the common American assertion that the spread of technology to the world is a good for the world, is liberating, is the vehicle by which the world progresses. Humans were meant to aim at truth, beauty, and goodness, not at the maximization of human freedom. This latter had for European liberals come to define what humans are. That is, at heart for such liberals, humans are defined by the, by the possession of liberty, the liberté of the French Revolution. Though Dawson valued liberty, he saw, it in, he saw it in a Christian manner, as simply something humans possessed so that they could choose for the transcendentals. Again, truth, beauty, and goodness. The question was the proper use of freedom in subjection to the transcendentals. Free will existed so that one could cling to the transcendentals, not so that one could do what one pleased, or be, in our language, autonomous. He valued freedom, but not, did not idolize it in the manner of Americans. Although he did not commonly use the idea of drama, as more recently developed by theologians such as Hans Urs von Balthasar, for him, history was dramatic, of the form of a struggle between those working for a culture of life and a culture of death, the outcome of which was open in the sense of being known only to God. I repeat, the Christian view of history does not entail general historical, pro uh, entail general historical progress. This latter idea grew out of, or is a secularized form of, the Christian idea that God is at work in time leading his people to something that is ultimately desirable. In the traditional Augustinian view, the notion of providence took the form of saying that there could be individual forms of progress. One human could become better over the course of a life, or one discovery could help improve life, but hardly thought of itself as a vehicle for a general, irreversible human improvement. Always the fact that each human inherits original sin, and that there is no certain way of passing unto a new generation whatever the present generation achieves have stood in the way of turning, of the, uh, turning the observation that distinct forms of development and progress do occur in history into the belief that general progress occurs. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville, faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.